what gets me out of the bed every day is looking at new potential innovations, not just within my industry, but elsewhere. And having that passion to be able to look for new things is a fundamental human need. The Born Global Coffee Pod series is powered by Advance, the professional network for overseas Australians, fueling change at home and around the world. When Aussies step out of their comfort zone and drive ideas, talent and ambition internationally, I don't know about you, but I feel a sense of irrepressible optimism. Through the 2021 Advanced Series, I'm going to introduce you to the next household names, triggering the waves of change that are breaking upon our shores down under. What makes so many Aussies take their ingenuity, hope and grit to faraway places? How can we celebrate and support them more readily? And who are these global success stories when they're at home? At a time when leadership can feel in turmoil, let's lift ourselves and future generations up with stories of Aussies born global, with the courage to become the change the world needs. Get ready to meet Yong In Cho, the Advance Awards Emerging Leader category finalist. He's a fintech expert specializing in the payments industry with a deep knowledge of the financial technology market across Asia. He's currently the head of e-commerce for the world's largest payment service company, Fiserv. He is a Korean-born Australian and he's built his financial technology expertise over the last 16 years. He's built payment solutions in Australia and internationally and was absolutely integral to establishing the first Australian technology company in South Korea in 2008. Since then, he's built payment solutions to improve user experience and security in making payments. He's also heavily involved in chambers of commerce. He's very much an active mentor to young leaders coming through the technology industry more broadly. I'm really excited to introduce you to him. Welcome, Yongin Cho. Well, Yongin Cho, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. I'm thrilled to have the opportunity to speak to you. I wanted to kick off by just asking you, with everything that's going on in the world, in your world of work too, for that matter, what's top of mind for you right now as we start this conversation? What are you focused on? I guess it's really the well-being of everyone um, internationally. Uh, because I'm in the fintech and payments industry, whether it be, you know, a pandemic or a financial crisis, everyone still remains to use their payment methods. So it's actually during the pandemics or the financial crisis where we see a higher traffic of transactions mm-hmm. or payments. And so we are looking at ways with, you know, the banks and credit card companies and, you know, mobile wallet companies to be able to find a way to be able to better streamline the payment experience for the consumers. Brilliant. And I wanted to ask you, you know, we've been hearing a lot of talk for a while now about progression to a cashless economy. And I feel like COVID really has accelerated that conversation, uh, particularly given the need to socially distance. You've seen a lot of places that took cash 12 months ago that are now, you know, um, you know, to kind of touch payment only or, or certainly trying to minimise any transaction in terms of handing over of coins or, or notes. Do you think this will dramatically hasten the, the pace towards a cashless economy? And what do you think are the opportunities and the challenges of that? You know, moving from cash to cashless payments, there's always been the concern of by the consumers about the fees. And because of these changes, it's pushing the banks and other wallet providers to be competitive and to be accommodating to be able to reduce their fees. So I think ultimately later, it's going to be our norm. 
Yeah, I think you're right. Now, I do wonder about some of the social challenges that come with removing cash from our economies in terms of the enormous number of unbanked people there are across the world and the like. But I think you're, you're right, you know, in terms of the, the other side of the coin being hopefully some, some benefits in terms of the efficiency and uh, even, you know, the transaction costs getting more competitive, uh, more innovation in the banking and payment space. There's, there's a lot of excitement, I imagine, in that regard. Literally a decade ago, you won't, you, no one really saw or knew about what fintech was. Now, you know, every newspaper, every news article you see on the internet, it's all about fintech and what's happening through the smartphones or smart devices. I'm interested too. I mean, you've carved out a career in fintech, but I was fascinated to read that you credit uh, Sydney TAFE diploma in drafting as being a catalyst for your career. Why was that diploma so significant? So... After graduating from high school, went to TAFE and took up architectural drawing. You know, it, it was a personal passion, I guess. Um, I loved drawing, loved architecture. Um, however, you know, ultimately down the track, you know, I found a new path to my future and my career path. But where it's helped me a lot is, unlike universities or colleges, the Sydney TAFE that I went to, was very focused on, you know, the actual experiences that I'm going to see in the workforce rather than theoretical-based, you know, learning. And those learnings that I got, which was quite incentive, uh, which normally universities for architecture takes about five to six years, whereas this particular diploma course was cramped into two years. Wow. So... That allowed me to be able to better problem solve, to be able to better time manage myself, and also to be able to be autonomous, uh, to be able to do multiple tasks, to be able to be you know detailed about each things that I need to complete. And that's fascinating. And I'm then intrigued for how the architectural drafting led to carving out a career in the fintech space. Can you talk us through kind of what the key decision points were on that journey? So when I went to TAFE, it was back in early 2000. Um, I think it was 1999. And that's when the environmental, renewable energy and those kind of things were the hip, I guess. And it was still very early in those days, whereas now everything, you've got wind turbines, you know, you've got hydrogen power, electronic cars. So there's a lot of those things now coming through and payments also was that, you know, in that section of the, I guess, industry where you have potential growth. It's been around for years and there's always new innovations coming through. So we had the back in Yahoo and Google days where we had the dot com Mm -hmm. period and then we had the wallets coming through. We had Apple phone coming through. And those kind of new things and apps coming through, ultimately, I saw there's much more greater opportunity there for me. So hence why I jump ship uh, to a different industry. Makes sense. And you're a Korean-born Australian. I wanted to ask a little bit about your family origins. When did your family come to Australia and and how did you find growing up in in Oz? I was born in Busan uh, in South Korea. My father was posted by the company Korea to look after the Australia office. And so my family, my mother and my younger brother moved over 
dad ultimately came back to Korea for work. However, I, my brother and my mother stayed in Sydney. And what was really positive for me now is that my father, instead of residing where the Korean communities are or such, we actually lived in front of the beach in the eastern suburbs. And being in that area, yes, you know, there's not much things to do, but it gave me an opportunity to be able to pick up sports where I could have never experienced that in South Korea uh, as a very young person. So, so did you become a cricketer? Did, what did you, you know, take up as a young person? So I took up competitive swimming, um, did surfing um, with my friends uh, every day over summer and winter in front of the beach, um, took up rugby and also played first grade basketball. Oh, wow. So, you took up everything. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, the school that I was in, uh, which was Waverley College, it gave me a, a good, I guess, understanding of, you know, being able to learn teamwork through sports because sports was compulsory. And they're also focused on the academics, you know, making sure that, you know, we're getting the results and the you know, schools required to be able to move on to the next step in our chapter after high school. How important do you think it was getting involved in sport and kind of the communities that come with sport in terms of fitting in and finding your feet? For me, it was very important because growing up in the eastern suburbs, there was somewhat a lot of racism because there was a very small Asian community and there was a very small group of ethnic, you know, people, non-Australian people. Now, these non-Australian people can make the choice to either separate themselves from the community or to be involved with these community or the fellow students to be able to play rugby together and build that respect within each other. So a lot of my friends are still from high school and primary school and we became friends through playing sports because sports build, you know, integrity, trust, friendship, and so those kind of things are uh, well built, especially in Australia, and maybe it's a cultural thing where I've seen in Korea or the US or such. I think Australian people are a lot more, I guess, friend-orientated, uh, more trustworthy, and a little bit more, I guess, easy, easygoing. I wanted to ask you about how that pervades in the working culture too. I mean, you're joining us in this conversation today from Korea. You've worked a lot across Australia and Korea throughout your career. How different are the two working environments and what are probably your biggest lessons from both countries in that regard? Uh, I think fundamentally the business culture and the business practices, are very they differ dramatically. Korea, I would say, is, and, you know, I've heard this from multiple times from, from the Australian Trade Commission, um, other fellow Australian, you know, people within Korea, they find Korea one of the hardest persons to penetrate in terms of new markets. Uh, where it's been successful for me, um, and it gave me a little bit of an edge, is that the fact that I had a Korean background. Mm. Uh, but... In terms of business, it's not really the background that plays a part. It's actually, you know, 
being able to have the right techniques, um, choosing the right words, having the respect to be able to do the business. So Koreans are very focused and they find it very important about you know, having that trust, building a relationship before doing any form of business. And that's the same thing with Australia. Um, no Australians do business unless they know that person, they can trust that person. So, yes, there is a, you know, a tangible aspect of the business deals, which is, you know, pricing, revenues and such. But it's also about the person that you're working with. That's a common thing between Australia and Korea. There may be the two different things about Korea and Australia is the period it takes to be able to complete a deal. Korea has a word called bali bali, uh, which is quickly, quickly. <laughs> the amount of time it takes normally to close or do business in Australia, that takes about five to six months. Koreans will do that within the month. And I wow. think that mentality came through uh, during the early 1970s, where Korea was very poor. Korea was literally the, you know, the developing country that was making shoes for Nike, Reebok, uh, car parts and things like that. And, you know, producing that quickly, you know, was the only way for the economy to grow. And I think that mentality kind of stayed. That's fascinating. And I wanted you open this conversation talking about well-being. I wanted to ask you, I mean, particularly given that velocity when it comes to work, I've been reading a lot of articles recently about particularly the tech culture in China. There's obviously been a, um, a number of uh, cases recently where people have sort of worked themselves to death effectively. And I wanted to ask you a bit about how with that operating intensity, how work-life balance looks in Korea. You know, is that a conversation? Do, do people have a sense of kind of that separation? Do, is recreation kind of top of mind or is it very much a working and productivity focused culture? I would say like China, it would be very, you know, productive um, environment. And I think one of the negativities that South Korea's got is they don't have any form of other environment or opportunities outside of work for them to be able to take a little bit of breather or, you know, to take that bit of, you know, I guess, time off in a sense. In terms of productivity, I think Korea is very quick. The thing is, in terms of productivity and quality, the standard of the quality in Korea um, is somewhat lower than other regions uh, because, as I mentioned before, quickly, quickly uh, becomes the issue. Mm -hmm. uh, but what's so great now is more and more there is foreign companies based out of Korea there are more and more Korean younger generations going overseas to either do traveling, work visa, or to study. And they come back to Korea with this new cultural understanding. And so when they become leaders themselves, they are implementing a little bit more relaxed environment. You know, there's a little bit more leniency, um, more freedom for their staff to be able to say, okay. I'll finish work at 6 p.m. I make sure that I do my work and then I take the time to either go to the gym or take, a, you know, a hobby mm. um, after work. So it's great to see that happening and 
what's so great also is some of the Korean major conglomerates um, is now putting in place programs to be able to help younger generation uh, workers and older generation workers to be able to, you know, find ways to be able to get them more relaxed. So for the younger generations, we have programs for them to be able to do some CSR or the other is to go on retreats. Uh, other is, you know, normal, some training camp for them to be able to go and experience, not work-related, but just something else. Uh, older generations are more focused on, you know, ha- about well-being. You know, we've got yoga classes and many different types, types of hobby activities. So I think Korea has definitely um, became a much more globalised uh, culture uh, than 10 years ago. That's interesting, and it, it's intriguing how similar that is to comments you'll hear from leaders from all sorts of different countries just about the generational shift as we become a more multicultural world and with the younger generation, sort of millennials and Gen Z, starting to enter into the workforce more and enter into leadership more, just how much that's changing workforce cultures. I wanted to circle back to something, if I can, the comment that you made around the difficulty in, in penetrating the Korean market. Can you offer any insight as to why it is particularly challenging to do that? Because uh, it's going back to the trust and relationship building. Biggest mistake a lot of the foreign companies make is when they're first coming to visit Korean companies, they try to enforce their understanding and the way of them conducting their business. Koreans have a very strong opinion or requirement, which is that if you're in Korea, you've got to do it the Korean way. So, you know, there's a saying, if you're in Rome, you've got to do it like the Romans kind of thing. So as long as you are making business proposals, but you're, build, you're building that trust with those fellow Korean counterparts, then it becomes a lot easier. And hence, you know, like anyone else, vice versa, you need to be there to be able to generate opportunities because it shows commitment so the company that I was working for back in 2007, this company was actually the first IT company to be established in South Korea, or first Australian IT company to establish itself in Korea. What this company and the CEO did very well is that they sent someone over to Korea and that person in Korea really focused on building that relationship with the banks in Korea to be able to earn their trust to be able to get a contract with them. That makes all the difference. I can imagine that in terms of just, you hear that quite consistently. I've heard that uh, with a number of Chinese entrepreneurs I've spoken to over the years that nothing does the work of time on the ground uh, and that important skin in the game, that, that desire to see commitment and the desire to see a genuine intention to want to build relationships and that can't be done you know, via, via email and teleconference as much as we've been forced into that with the pandemic. It's uh, certainly something that I think is uh, a very strong theme that comes through. I wanted to ask you about your own career. I found it really interesting reading about you that you've launched a number of businesses of your own as well as holding very senior roles in a number of large businesses. It's interesting because people, I think, often see themselves as one or the other. They see themselves as an entrepreneur, someone who likes doing their own thing, building businesses, or someone who quite enjoys working, even if it is in a business building type of role, but for other organisations. 
do you think there's an, an entrepreneur in, in everyone? Do you have a preference for what sort of role you like to take on? I think everyone uh, is does have what it takes to be an entrepreneur because of the fact that they are working nine to five with inside an organisation. You can't say that they are not an entrepreneur because as long as they are there helping that company grow with their ideas, with their input, they are an entrepreneur themselves. My experience itself is I've tried doing businesses myself and I've also worked for you know smaller companies and I've also worked for very large companies. And what I've learned is personally running my own business is not my strongest point. Uh, because I have my strength elsewhere. And by trying all these different trial and error, it got me to realise where my strengths are and who can benefit from my strengths. So my biggest strength would be um, knowing that I'm a very good salesperson. I'm able to make good innovations with new products inside the fintech industry and working for companies like Pfizer, which is a global payments company, they are able to support my innovations and ideas into an actual product. So in 2019, when I joined the organisation, I was given the homework to be able to globalise the Korea uh, business to make it cross-border or internationalise and, and access to allowing international e-commerce or, you know, retailers to be able to come into Korea through the Pfizer network and allowing Korean companies to be able to go international. And we call that solution an IPG. And it's basically a global gateway that's able to do that. And a little innovation I had was to be able to localise the Korea payments to be acceptable everywhere around the world because Koreans love the cross-border shopping and so we're just trying to bring that benefit elsewhere to the global retailers. Nice. Your leadership, would you describe yourself as having a particular mantra or philosophy that you try to bring to the way that you lead teams and mobilise people? I don't actually have one myself personally, I would say, Uh, but what I do tend to do is when I pick my team or recruit someone, I always look for the people that I can trust. So there's the, you know, really smart, hardworking people and there's the not so smart but, you know, higher trust person. The reason why is because no matter how smart you are, if the trust is not there, our customers will not have that trust with you and neither is the team or your peers. And so i rather have someone that I can trust, that we can work hard and fight together and collaborate together. Hence why integrity is very important because integrity creates communication, creates teamwork, and that's the key philosophy I like to maintain. I think trust has been a very clear through line through this conversation, whether it's talking about you know, doing business in Korea right the way through to the approach that you bring to leading teams. It's definitely something I've taken away from our chat. I wanted to ask you one final question before we wrap up, and that is with the kind of all of your wealth of experience, one of the things we're really keen on doing with this podcast is, I guess, helping people to think about how they can take ideas and inspiration and turn it into action. So if you could encourage everyone who's listened to our chat today to 
take one action to do something differently, what would you like to encourage them to do? So for me, uh, what gets me out of the bed every day is looking at, you know, new potential innovations, not just, you know, within my industry, but elsewhere. Having that passion to be able to look for new things, I guess, is a fundamental human need. You know, I look at, you know, not just, you know, newspapers or articles, but going out there and speaking to people, you know, and finding out, you know, the really successful people, not what they've done right, because for me, I've met very famous, you know, entrepreneurs and everyone. But what the one thing I always ask them is what, not what have they done for them to get there is what have they done wrong? Mm. And what mistakes have they made? Because it's a lot easier for me to learn not to do the same mistakes they did rather than me trying to copy them. Because I know for a fact that there's going to be a lot of people uh, within the fintech industry who will try to copy what I'm good at, but they won't be very successful. However, if they just follow and not do my mistakes, I think they'll be very successful. So if I can ask one cheeky follow-up then, what mistakes have you made that all of us can learn from? Very simple thing, which is just making sure that you're always on your toes. Don't always, because you've got everything, don't relax. Be passionate about what you're doing as always because once you lose that passion, you lose growth, um, you lose integrity and you lose that drive. Um, and so integrity is very important for me uh, because that's what gets me out of bed. It gets me to look at new innovations. It gets me to keep healthy and, you know, keep my mind clear and to also to be able to help my team and my peers and my customers to be able to better themselves in their business. I love that. Always be hungry and always be passionate. Well, Yongin, it's been such a pleasure to talk with you. Congratulations on everything that you're achieving. It's a career I'm going to continue to Thank follow you. with a lot of interest and I really appreciate the time that you've given today and the, and the candour with which you've shared. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. I hope you're feeling fired up to be the change that you want to see in the world. I'd love to hear about the impact you're having. So hit me up on social and let me know what you're working on. And if you've enjoyed the conversation, why not keep it alive and share it with someone in your world? I'm Holly Ransom. Let's grab a coffee again soon.